This is the Best Song Podcast, an oral history of the first 90 years of the Academy Award for Best Original Song. The Best Song Podcast was made possible by the generous support of the following. Paulus Edukas, Terry Freerks, Tina Fry, Jeff Glazer, Mark Hollingsworth, Douglas Meacham, Mark Smith, The Sokolov Family, Colin Stokes, Adrian Quinn Washington, and Ben Watson. Let's settle in now for this episode with the host of the Best Song Podcast, Jeff Cummings. We're approaching a new decade, the 1960s, when the countercultural revolution was fully underway in politics and entertainment. John F. Kennedy was president and Elvis Presley was king. The most popular movies were no longer the uplifting musicals and slapstick comedies from the days of Fred Astaire, Martin and Lewis, and Jimmy Stewart. Studios went to dark places in their latest films, thanks to the easing up of the production code that had kept movies from talking about unwed mothers, unmarried young women, and morally ambiguous men. Take three of the top ten movies of 1960, for example. Psycho, Butterfield 8, and The Apartment all pushed the envelope in their storytelling and became classics. Not one of the top ten grocers is a musical, though Disney's Swiss Family Robinson tried to give families something to watch together and succeeded. No one was willing to make a big-budget original movie musical, putting money instead into adaptations of Broadway hits. That meant the Hollywood songwriters looking for work wouldn't get it by creating a big original movie musical, but rather for writing one title song. With musicals continuing to fight for the attention they used to get easily 10 years ago, Movie songs had to do the same thing, and it wasn't an easy sell in 1960. Studios would rather put their money into epics than pay songwriters, performers, and musicians, money that didn't really guarantee more money through a hit record. Remember last year that none of the five nominated songs placed high on the Billboard Hot 100, and we're going to find that to be true again for the five songs nominated in 1960. Rock and roll was still the genre that was bringing people into record stores, and Hollywood songwriters were not ready or willing to change their styles to make more money. So how should we approach our listen to the five Oscar-nominated songs of 1960? Let's go in alphabetical order for this episode, and remember that I'll be revealing some key plot points while discussing these songs. We'll start with the title song to the Bob Hope comedy, The Facts of Life. Before you start singing the song you know from the 1980s TV sitcom, I'm going to tell you that the Oscar-nominated song is not that song. The song for the TV show was written by Alan Thicke, Gloria Loring, and Al Burden. The 1960 song was composed by Johnny Mercer, earning Oscar nomination number 12. Mercer was one of many struggling songwriters in 1960, worried that their talents were no longer viable. Mercer had been one of the most celebrated songwriters in the 1950s, putting a hit record on the Billboard Hot 100 almost every month for a decade. But as the 1950s ended, Mercer was lucky to write or perform a hit song. The song The Facts of Life wasn't going to reverse that trend, unfortunately, though. Mercer wrote a swing-style duet performed by husband and wife duo Steve Lawrence and Edie Gourmet. That talks about the birds and the bees and what they do after they do what the birds and bees do. They get up at dawn and save their money for their families. Gourmet and Lawrence are excited to learn about this life, even promising to stay up late and study these facts of life. 
facts of life. You want to know the facts of life. I'm going to teach the facts of life to you. Now, concerning the birds and bees, inhabiting all those trees, establishing up with each daisy, singing like crazy. Storing up money, saving them money. Those are the facts of life. Oh, yeah. The ordinary acts of life uh-huh. that every living creature seems to do. stars Bob Hope and Lucille Ball in their third movie together. This was Lucille Ball's first movie since ending her popular TV show, and her attempt to distance herself from Lucy Ricardo is admirable. A hit song coming from a film starring two of Hollywood's best entertainers should have been an easy sell, but it appears that Mercer and United Artists weren't able to sell the song to a record company. If Mercer still had a stake in Capitol Records, it would have been easy for him to get the record made and sold to the public. Without it, The Facts of Life somehow did what it needed to do to earn an Oscar nomination. Our next song comes from the Columbia Pictures musical Pepe, which tries to capitalize on the popularity that Mexican actor Cantinflas found with his Golden Globe winning role in Around the World in 80 Days. It only took five years to find the right vehicle for Cantinflas, but it turned out to be more of a chance to trot out some of the biggest movie stars. Contenfloss's performance as Pepe is decent, but when you watch the movie, all you think about is when the next movie star will show up. And at 2 hours and 37 minutes, there are lots of those cameos. Bing Crosby, Jack Lemmon, Greer Garson, and newspaper columnist Hedda Hopper are just a few of the more than 30 brief appearances. One big star who was billed in the opening credits with the cameo is Judy Garland, but only her singing voice makes an appearance. She's heard on the radio during a scene when Shirley Jones, playing a fictional actress looking to get her Hollywood break, dances with Dan Daly, playing a fictional Hollywood director. Judy Garland was supposed to appear on screen in the movie, but she was dealing with illnesses and addictions to pills and couldn't do any filming. It's a small miracle that she was able to record this song called Far Away Part of Town, and that made such an impression that it was nominated for the Academy Award. The song takes place when Susie, played by Shirley Jones, meets Daly's director at his home. They argue about their current statuses in Hollywood and why neither can help the other. 
After the argument, Susie storms out to the pool, where Pepe consoles her and tries to boost her morale by describing how beautiful she would look on the movie screen. The two of them hear music, not knowing that a radio is playing nearby with Judy Garland's performance of Far Away Part of Town, describing a woman who yearns to be with the elegant people she sees in the distance. Lonely she roams through the city The buildings seem barren and brown She was lost in the lights of the distance In a faraway part of town Judy Garland's recording of the faraway part of town. This is KFWB, Color Channel 98, Los Angeles. And along with Judy, KFWB is signing off the air and will return tomorrow morning. The radio DJ cuts in with two minutes still remaining in the song. Luckily, the rest of it is included on the official soundtrack album.
she long to run? How would she know who was the one? The faraway heart, the faraway heart, in the faraway parts of time. The song was written by Andre Previn, the prolific and respected composer, arranger, and conductor, with lyrics by Dory Langdon. Previn and Langdon were both under contract at MGM and met as collaborators for Pepe. They married in 1959, just as they were beginning work on writing songs for Pepe, but Langdon kept her maiden name on the credits for this movie and future films through the early 1960s. The soundtrack album was released by Cole Picks Records owned by Columbia Pictures, but no one had the foresight to release any of the songs as record singles to help drum up interest. Judy Garland hadn't had a hit single since she sang on the Atchison, Topeka, and the Santa Fe back in 1945, and she had to wait a little longer to find herself being praised again as a singing star, but she wouldn't have to wait too long. In July 1961, seven months after Pepe hit movie theaters, the recording of Judy Garland's live concert at Carnegie Hall hit record stores and was a big hit, earning Judy Garland lots of Grammy Awards and, more importantly, the respect she had been trying to win back since the early 1950s. As for Contenflas, this is the last time he made an English-language film. Pepe earned just $4 million, costing almost twice as much to make. Despite the financial failure, Pepe received seven Academy Award nominations, none of which were for acting. Also earning seven Academy Award nominations for the year 1960 was The Alamo, starring John Wayne as American hero Davy Crockett during the Battle of the Alamo in 1836. This was John Wayne's directorial debut and a huge undertaking for him financially and as an actor. This movie turned out to be a financial failure, making $7 million back on its $12 million budget. John Wayne put up a lot of his own money to get the film made, and he got very little of it back. Critics didn't like the historical inaccuracies, and that convinced most of the public to stay away. Dmitry Tiomkin's score does a lot of the heavy lifting in this three-hour movie. He and Paul Francis Webster tried to help the film by creating three songs, only one of which is performed by one of the movie's characters. The other two are sung by an off-screen chorus. The one that got the Oscar nomination was The Green Leaves of Summer, which Tiomkin wrote with Paul Francis Webster. 
The song comes very near the end of the movie, but we've been given Tiomkin's melody often in the score during the film's romantic moments. The most impactful comes before the big battle, when the women and children leave the Alamo. As the camera shows the carriages leaving the mission, a harmonica gives us the somber but lyrical melody. You can hear how much the melody is begging for lyrics. The night after the first big battle, the officers count the dead and wounded, and those still alive sit in silence as they look back on the high and low points of their lives. The only vocal performance of the Green Leaves of Summer comes under the dialogue in this scene, and isn't easily heard, even when no one is talking. If heard more distinctly, it would have perfectly reflected the soldiers' thoughts about a simpler time, when they were younger and those green leaves in the title were calling them home to ripe apples and wise owls.
At the end of the scene, John Wayne is asked what he's thinking about. Not thinking, he says, just remembering. Most likely thinking about those catfish that were jumping in the river. You might have noticed that this song has no instrumental accompaniment, making this the first Oscar-nominated song to not feature musical instruments. There was a stipulation in the Academy Rulebook that said musical accompaniment is not essential, which qualified any a cappella song such as this. The song is quite haunting when it's heard in the film, and if I were more musically educated, I could accurately describe the notes and chords that give me chills when the chorus sings The Green Leaves of Summer are calling me home. You can hear it in the instrumental as well, but it's more profound with Webster's lyrics. It would have been a wise choice to not add instruments to the official commercial release performed by the Brothers Four, but a cappella songs probably did not sell well in record stores. The green leaves of summer are calling me home. Twas so good to be young then in the season of plenty when the catfish were jumping as high as the sky. A time just for planting, a time just for plowing, a time to be courting. The music branch liked one of the other songs that Tiomkin and Webster wrote for the Alamo, so much so that they put it in the top ten after preliminary voting. The song is The Ballad of the Alamo, sung by a chorus in the final minute of the film after one of the women leaves the shell-shocked Alamo ruins with her daughter after Santa Ana takes it over. Siege of Alamo, lift the tattered banner. 
10 years earlier, we had the first Oscar-nominated song to be performed entirely in a language other than English. Mona Lisa became a big hit that year for Nat King Cole, who, of course, sang it in English instead of the Italian film version. But he certainly helped it earn an Oscar. It took 10 years for another non-English song to get an Oscar nomination, and there's a wild journey for the song and the film itself. Jules Dassin wrote and directed the movie Never on Sunday, and also played the leading man. Dassin had been a promising director in Hollywood in the late 1940s and early 1950s, until various testimonies for the House Un-American Activities Committee named Dassin as a member of the Communist Party. Dassin was never officially blacklisted, but in order to avoid testifying before the committee, he moved to Europe in 1953. Dassin's association with the Communist Party followed him to Europe, where he couldn't get work because American distributors wouldn't show his films in the United States. He did direct the 1955 thriller Rafifi, which only got an American release through some under-the-table dealings in Hollywood. This made Dassin the first person on the blacklist to officially have a film shown in the United States with his name in the credits. Dassin's love of all things Greek began in 1955, when he accepted his Best Director Award for Rafifi at the Cannes Film Festival. While there, he met Greek actress Melina Mercouri and fell in love with her. That love inspired Dassin to learn more about Greece, which led him to reading the Greek tragedies and other classic works of literature. Over the next few years, he worked on the screenplay for Never on Sunday, which became an homage to Greek life as well as a variation of the Pygmalion Greek myth and the George Bernard Shaw play called Pygmalion. Mercury is Dassin's co-star in Never on Sunday, playing Ilya, a prostitute who enjoys her independent life. Dassin is Homer, an American who spends the bulk of the film trying to reform Ilya and get her to quit her job. The song that was nominated for an Oscar comes just after a montage of sorts in which Homer is trying to show Ilya the finer points of life and she subsequently agrees to put a pause on her line of work. Sitting in Homer's apartment by herself, she's listening to a classical piece of music. She has the idea to find a hidden record in the bookshelf, which she plays. As the music plays, Ilya sings in Greek a song of praise for Piraeus, the Greek town she lives in. Now, Since the words are in Greek, I'm going to translate it all for you before you hear the song. From my window I send you one and two and three and four kisses, and to the port come one and two and three and four birds. I want to have one and two and three and four sons, who when they become men will be the pride of Piraeus. And then here's the chorus. If I search the world over, I'll find no other port that has driven me crazy as much as Piraeus. When twilight comes, the ports sings my songs, it changes its strike, and become full of young men. And then verse number two. No one goes by my door for whom I don't feel love, and those to come tomorrow fill my dreams at night. So to the jewels around my neck, I add a pearl to bring me luck, and now I'm ready to welcome the stranger from the port. And then the song ends with the chorus again.
το παράθυρο μου στέλνω ένα, δύο και τρία και τέσσερα φίλια που φτάνουν στο λιμάνι ένα και δύο και τρία και τέσσερα πουλιά πως ήθελα να έχω ένα και δύο και τρία και τέσσερα παιδιά Σαν θα μεγαλώσουν όλα να γίνουν λεβένες για χάρη του πύρια Όσο κι αν ψάξω δεν βρίσκω άλλο λιμάνι Τρελή να με έχει κάνει όσο το πύρια Που όταν βραδιάζει τραγουδιά Παραδιάζει και τις πένιες του αλλάζει Γέμιζε από παιδιά Πόρτα μου σαβώ δεν υπάρχει κανείς που να μην τον αγαπώ Και σαν το βράδυ κοιμηθώ ξέρω πως ξέρω πως θα τον ονειρευτώ Πετρά διαβάζω στο λαιμό και μια χά και μια χάντρα φυλαχτώ Γιατί τα βράδια καρτερώ στο λιμάνι σαβώ κάποιον άγνωστο να βρω Όσο κι αν ψάξω δεν βρίσκω άλλο λιμάνι Τρέλη να με έχει κάνει όσο το πειραιά Όταν βραδιάζει τραγούδια μαραδιάζει Και τις πένιες του αλλάζει γέμιζε από παιδιά Note that the words never on Sunday do not appear in the translation of the original song. The original title of the song was translated from the Greek to The Children of Piraeus, which does appear in the song. The music and lyrics are by celebrated Greek composer Manos Hajidakis, who was 35 years old when he became world famous for the song. Hajidakis had been writing scores for Greek films for about five years when Dawson approached him to score Never on Sunday and contribute a couple of songs for Mercury to sing, including the Children of Piraeus. The song prominently features the bouzouki, a variation on the stringed lute instrument that is popular in Greece. One story goes that Hajidakis originally planned to have the piano be the main instrument of the song, but after seeing a performance of the bouzouki by Giorgio Sampetas, the bouzouki became the signature component of the song. And with the blacklist officially history, Dawson had no problem selling this film to an American distributor. 
It was picked up by the international distribution arm of United Artists for less than $1 million. When the critics began hailing Mercury's performance and Dawson's directing, the art house theaters showing the film began selling out and brought in nearly $4 million in ticket sales. The song, The Children of Piraeus, was never thought to be a major player for an Academy Award nomination until Never on Sunday found its way into movie theaters. As the movie was gaining attention in the United States, Hajidakis' melody was finding favor with record producers who wanted to release an instrumental version of the song. Because no one in the United States would buy a record called The Children of Piraeus, the song was retitled Never on Sunday to give it a tie-in with the film. In the final five months of 1960, no less than ten instrumental versions of Never on Sunday were released, with Don Costa's record selling out the best. It was probably so popular because it was one of the few to retain the Greek feel of the original version, especially the lute and the finger snaps, instead of making it into a bland orchestral version. Costa's record went all the way to number 19 on the Billboard Hot 100 charts, the highest position for any Oscar-nominated song in three years. When the film was submitted for Oscar consideration, Never on Sunday became the new title for the song in English-speaking countries, and therefore the title of the song that members of the music branch saw on their ballots when voting for it. It's not known if the screening of the top 10 vote-getters after preliminary voting had subtitles displayed for The Children of Piraeus slash Never on Sunday, but even if they were, and voters noticed that the English translation of the original didn't include the film's title, they liked it enough to give it an Oscar nomination. And another trivia note about the song is that it's the first to be nominated for an Oscar for a film not produced in the United States or by a major Hollywood studio. Most of the country was going crazy for Melina Mercury, and the environment was ripe for the public to move on from Bing Crosby. At 57 years old, his reign as king of the box office had long passed, but for my money, he still had a commanding presence on the screen. In any case, it was only fitting that he star in the 1960 movie High Time. The movie featured Crosby as Harvey, a widower and the owner of a successful chain of burger restaurants who decides to enroll as a freshman at a university. In the movie, Crosby is 51 years old, and he's rooming with three men more than 30 years his junior. The role was originally going to go to Gary Cooper, and when Cooper's illness forced him to withdraw, the script went through some changes, including adding some songs for Bing Crosby. Sammy Kahn and Jimmy Van Heusen provide the two original tunes for the film. One of them, called Nobody's Perfect, is mentioned in the credits but was removed from the final version due to negative reactions from a preview audience who didn't like the duet between Crosby and teen idol Fabian. The other one, the second time around, is a solo piece for Crosby, a love song to express his feelings for a French professor played by Nicole Maury. The song comes during Harvey's junior year, when he has come to fall in love with the professor. One night before a dinner at her home, he sits at the piano to create a musical ambiance and begins singing about the joys of falling in love at a more mature age. Love is lovelier The second time around Just as wonderful With both feet on the ground 
It's that second time you hear your love song sung Makes you think, perhaps, that love like youth is wasted on the young Love's more comfortable the second time you fall Like a friendly home The second time you call Who can say What brought us to this miracle we found There are those who'll bet Love comes but once And yet I'm oh so glad we met the second time around. It's interesting that Crosby says that love, like youth, is wasted on the young. As a widower, one would assume that he fell in love with and married his wife when he was in his 20s. But I suppose there was no recollection of that by Sammy Kahn, the lyricist, Bing Crosby, the performer, or Blake Edwards, the director. But when you look at it strictly from this point in time in Harvey's life, it's a sentimental statement. And it's that rare song that isn't about first love. So the message alone likely attracted the music branch voters enough to give it a nomination. Naturally, Bing Crosby recorded the song for a proper commercial release. But so did Frank Sinatra and it was another case of dueling versions that resulted in a big win for Sinatra. Crosby's version never entered the Billboard Hot 100, and Sinatra's performance peaked at number 50 just as the music branch was voting on the song nominees for 1960. Both versions are good, but the performances are different. Crosby is more low-key and romantic, while Sinatra sings with more enthusiasm for this newfound love. Here is the first minute of each song for a comparison, starting with Crosby's. Love is lovelier The second time around Just as wonderful With both feet on the ground It's that second time You hear your love song sung Makes you think, perhaps that love like youth is wasted on the young Love's more comfortable the second time you fall Like a friendly home the second time you call Love 
second time around Just as wonderful With both feet on the ground It's that second time You hear your love song sung Makes you think perhaps That love like youth Is wasted on the young Love more comfortable The second time you fall Like a friendly home Second time you I haven't mentioned the contributions of Nelson Riddle to the success of many of the commercial recordings of Frank Sinatra songs. Yes, the melodies by Jimmy Van Heusen are top-notch, and Kahn's lyrics often tailor-made to fit Sinatra's voice, and Bing Crosby's as well. But Riddle had been there since the early 1950s refining the arrangements to allow the perfect amount of musicians to back up Sinatra, and Riddle found himself attached to work on just about every Sinatra movie moving forward. High Time was the seventh movie directed by Blake Edwards, who would not dwell in obscurity for much longer. That will also be true for the man who wrote the score for High Time, Henry Mancini. So why wasn't Henry Mancini involved in writing any of the songs from the movie? Well, if you remember from previous episodes, Jimmy Van Heusen had a very, very long history of writing songs for Bing Crosby, going all the way back to Van Heusen writing the music for Swinging on a Star in 1944 and winning an Oscar for it. Kahn was simply along for the ride as Van Heusen's new lyricist, though Kahn had also known Crosby for many years. Henry Mancini was already having a meteoric rise in his career, and he could thank Blank Edwards for that. Mancini was dwelling in relative obscurity in Hollywood as an arranger, composer, and performer under contract at Universal Pictures until 1959, until he was hired by Blake Edwards to write the theme music for the TV show Peter Gunn in 1958. That instrumental theme, with its funky electric guitar, driving bass piano chords, and jazzy brass, would win Mancini two Grammys and an Emmy, and kickstart a career in movies that will be boosted by his association with Blake Edwards. We'll be hearing more about Mancini and Edwards on the Best Song podcast. Sammy Kahn and Jimmy Van Heusen were extremely busy in 1960, writing songs for seven movies that were released that year. Most of them required just one or two songs for the movie, but the Marilyn Monroe film Let's Make Love needed four songs, one of which used Bing Crosby's pipes in a cameo appearance. It's pointless to play any of these songs because none of them are that great, and the movie is a victim of being made mostly to show off Marilyn Monroe's talents, none of which involved acting. But there was one movie that remains the highlight of all their songwriting ventures in 1960, and that's Ocean's Eleven, the movie that served as the movie debut of The Rat Pack. Frank Sinatra, Dean Martin, and Sammy Davis Jr. were the original members of the Rat Pack, and in Ocean's Eleven, Peter Lawford joined the group for a little bit of appeal to the younger crowd. 
What's odd about the songs Khan and Van Heusen wrote for Ocean's Eleven is that none of them were performed by Frank Sinatra, their golden goose. Dean Martin gets the song that might have been in the running for an Oscar nomination called Ain't That a Kick in the Head, which he performs at the Sahara Hotel as an entertainer while the group plans their elaborate heist. How lucky can one guy be? I kissed her and she kissed me. Like the fellow once said, ain't that a kick in the head? The room was completely black. I hugged her and she hugged back. Like the sailor said, quote, ain't that a hole in the boat? My head keeps spinning. I go to sleep and keep grinning. If this is just the beginning, my life is gonna be beautiful. I've sunshine enough to spread. It's just like the fella said. Tell me quick, ain't love a kick in the head. Like Ocean's Eleven, Ain't That a Kick in the Head was not an immediate success but grew in popularity with the public over the years. It has become indelibly tied to Dean Martin, and the Rat Pack performed it quite often after the premiere of Ocean's Eleven. But their popularity wasn't enough to get it on the official roster of Oscar nominees in 1960, including the short list of ten. So seven men and one woman nominated for the original song Oscar were hoping they would be declared winners at the 33rd Academy Awards ceremony. The show brought a lot of first-time changes. For the first time, the show was being held right on the Pacific coastline in Santa Monica, really a stone's throw from Hollywood, but still not in Hollywood or Los Angeles. And the ABC network aired the show for the first time. A lot of the press went to Elizabeth Taylor, nominated for Best Actress for playing a prostitute in Butterfield 8. She had just been released from a hospital in London after a series of ailments, that many believed would give her the sympathy vote. And though they weren't superstars, the feud between Sammy Kahn and Dmitry Tiomkin made headlines for their trash-talking about each other's work. Kahn lamented that Tiomkin's overzealousness to win an Oscar ever since he first grabbed the award for his work on High Noon has caught on with other songwriters and composers. Tiomkin, who was called a relentless publicity seeker by columnist Dick Williams just three weeks before the Academy Awards, had this reply. This is his quote. I admit the awards are losing their dignity, but we are living here in a jungle. The competition and cruelty existing in entertainment, you could not believe. Today you're good. Tomorrow a new man takes over. End quote. There is some truth to Tiomkin's statements, and in the same newspaper as Tiomkin's interview, another writer called the fight for an Oscar a war. But not every songwriter was stumping for an Oscar in the daily trades. Manos Hadjadakis was reportedly working on a new score for a Greek film, not really thinking much about the Oscar nomination, which was good because the tiny distributor Lopert Pictures had no advertising budget and would hope the film would win at least one of the four nominations it earned on merit alone. Newspaper writers were picking Tiomkin's song, The Green Leaves of Summer, for the win. That might have something to do with the multitude of ads John Wayne was paying for, but others were predicting that the second time around could win and make it five Oscar-winning songs that Bing Crosby has sung. 
Perhaps the Grammy nomination that the second time around received for Song of the Year gave journalists good reason to think the Kahn and Van Heusen song was Oscar-worthy. But on April 13, 1961, four days before the Oscar ceremony, the second time around lost the Song of the Year Grammy to Ernest Gold's theme from Exodus, the first time an instrumental composition won the award. Though the MGM musical was in decline, there was still a place for Arthur Freed and Vicente Minnelli as producer and director of this year's Academy Awards. And the musically-minded duo allowed the nominated songs to be performed one at a time throughout the show. Connie Francis, who was one of the many people who would record the English version on Negver on Sunday, sang the English version at the Oscars. Host Bob Hope had a wisecrack for all the titles of the nominated songs, including saying that the second time around was dedicated to husband and wife Joe DiMaggio and Marilyn Monroe. When all the songs had been performed, TV personality Steve Allen and his wife Jane Meadows came out to see if Sammy Kahn and Jimmy Van Heusen would lose twice in four days. Neither of their names were in the envelope that Meadows opened. It was Manos Hadjadakis winning the award for Never on Sunday, making this the first song from a movie made outside the Hollywood system to win the award. Hadjadakis celebrated in London with his nominated director Jules Dassin when he received the news. Someone was supposed to accept the award, but they didn't show up. Allen joked that, I guess he won't be here until Sunday, and riffed until Bob Hope grabbed the Oscar and said, this is the moment I've been waiting for. Many newspapers singled out Hajidakis' win as the big surprise of the ceremony. The columnist from the San Francisco Examiner was one of the dissenters, saying Never on Sunday was, quote, far ahead of its competitors in every sense, end quote. And the Los Angeles Times couldn't believe that people weren't expecting the song to win. Quote, it's the first fresh sound in a movie since the third man theme, end quote. That music, by the way, was written in 1949, so I guess that columnist didn't think anything written by Dimitri Tiomkin, Max Steiner, or Miklos Rosa was any good. And Ernest Gold picked up another award for his work on Exodus, winning the Oscar for Best Original Score. As far as Hajodakis goes, he did finally receive his Oscar a few days later, and it would be three more years until he found the right project to mark a return to Hollywood. He wrote the score to Elia Kazan's America, America, though he never received any recognition for his work from his peers for that movie. He did return to the United States in 1966 to write more songs for Jewel Dassin's adaptation of Never on Sunday as a Broadway musical. It was nominated for a bunch of Tonys, but Hadjadakis lost the Best Score Award to Jewel Stein and his work on Hallelujah Baby, a musical about a talented black woman in the first half of the 1900s, written and directed by white men and women. And there's a discussion to be had about that for another podcast on another day. The second time around was the 14th song that Bing Crosby sang to an Oscar nomination, and it was his last. Introducing 14 Oscar-nominated songs is a record that will be tough to match in the coming decades, especially since few entertainers had the staying power of Bing Crosby. He was one of the top five movie stars and singers across three decades, staying relevant all the way to the explosion of rock and roll onto the music scene. High Time was the perfect movie for Bing, showing his disbelief that the music that his character loves, which is the music that made Bing Crosby famous, is being pushed aside for more aggressive rock and roll. 
Crosby is going to make movies until 1966, though none of them had him working with a good script or good musical material, hence the lack of another Oscar nomination for any future movie songs he will perform. So history was made at the 33rd Academy Awards, and life went on for Hollywood songwriters as they felt the foreign invasion on their turf for the first time in the original song category. We'll see what tunes counter up for this in 1961 on the next episode of the Best Song Podcast. We'll see a triumphant return of the movie musical, though not the kind that will have any effect on the original song category at the Oscars. Thanks for singing along with me on this episode. We'll do it again soon. The Best Song Podcast is not authorized or endorsed by the Academy of Motion Picture Arts and Sciences. The show's creator, writer, producer, and editor is Jeff Cummings. All music clips are permitted for use under the Education Clause of the Fair Use Doctrine in United States law.